Okay. So, what did I leave out? Verse 3, 4. Okay. He says, uh, when, when you assemble, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So leaven represents sin. It represents defilement. So Paul saying, this leaven, this man in this church you all are, are letting in this congregation, without removing him, he's going to corrupt the whole body, basically. So what does he say do in verse 7? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened, you're really clean. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Christ is our Passover lamb. Okay? So Paul is saying here that Christ is our Passover. So you're looking back here in Deuteronomy. This Passover to the Lord is, is uh, prophetically speaking of Christ. Because Christ was the lamb of God who was sacrifice and whose blood was received and applied okay to the doorpost of the home in uh, Exodus 12 that's what they had to do remember they had to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost when the death angel passed over you know because it was the firstborn death angel that God that, that last plague <laughs> you know uh, that, that death angel passed over and when the angel saw the blood on the doors it would pass over them okay so that's what that was so Christ's blood was received and applied just like the blood sprinkled on the doorpost was that so Paul I'm um, back to Deuteronomy here no leaven has been seen with you in all your territory for seven days nor shall any flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning you may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you but at the place that the Lord will choose. So it's an appointed place where this Passover lamb will, this Passover will take place. And verse 7 says, You shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go into your tents for six days. You shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So remember, again, these are instructions for when they go into the promised land. Remember that's what Deuteronomy is about. They, they're on the banks of the Jordan. So God is giving them these instructions. Okay. So you have the feast of the Passover in verses 1 and 2. And then you have the feast of the unleavened bread in verses 3 and 4. Okay. And so remember leaven the feast of unleavened bread uh, related to the time of Jesus' burial. Okay, that's what it it uh, it pointed to. So, all of this points to Christ. Okay, the Passover, the unleavened bread, all pointed to Christ. And then God gave the regulations for the Passover, as we read in verses five through eight, that they may not offer it uh, within any of their towns, but at the place where God appointed. 
They shall cook it and eat it at the place that God would choose. So these were the regulations for uh, doing the Passover. So in other words, the Lord was very uh, specific as to how he desired to be worshipped. And so that's the Passover. Next we have the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. Okay? So it says here in verse 9, You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to uh, the grain. Okay? Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your town, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So just from reading here, you can see that the Feast of Pentecost was a celebration. Okay, it was a feast associated with the joy of harvest, basically. Okay, uh, whether Israel brought, Israelites brought a free will offering to the Lord, it says that in verse 10. A tribute of a free will offering, so they brought whatever uh, they desired. And a free will offering is basically an expression of thankfulness for the blessing of harvest uh, that they had. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a way to, to thank the Lord. So when it said putting a sickle uh, to the standing grain, that's like mark. That's like the end of the harvest. That's when they begin to take the sickle and you know cut down the cut down the harvest and everything. So um, Pentecost meant 50, 50 days. Okay, that's what Pentecost uh, meant. And so it was done in uh, seven weeks. So they offered free will offers to the Lord and they uh, rejoiced. And again, they're called to what? Remember their slavery in Egypt. They're always called to remember that God always reminds them of where they were as a people. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is called, you know, God calls us to remember that we were once in bondage to sin. I'm going to be talking about that Sunday, uh, talking about redemption. You know, we have to remember that before Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were in bondage. You know, we may not think we were because we were probably quote good people and didn't do anything to go to jail and stuff like that but you were still slaves to your sin you were still in uh, slavery to sin okay because you were unregenerate and you were under the wrath of God so you know we have to sometimes remember man at one time I was a slave to sin at one time I was under the power of Satan at one time I was uh, in the kingdom of darkness so the joy of Pentecost was intensified by remembering the bondage uh, that they had escaped. That's, that's what gave the great joy, remembering. Just like when we sing to the Lord, you know, we rejoice when we sing because, man, we know what God has delivered us from. And, you know, I was listening to um, a pastor talk about this uh, earlier this week about uh, what should give us joy when we worship God because you know you have these, these pastors trying to whip their church members into like a frenzy by preaching certain ways and stuff like that 
but what should give believers joy is remembering what God has done for us through Christ and saving us. That drives our worship. You know, theology determines worship. The more you know about God, the more joy you have. You know, the more you know about what God has done for you through Christ, the more you, you meditate on what Christ has done for you, that, guess what? That gives us great joy. And that joy expresses itself in how we pray, how we sing. You know, we don't have to tell everybody, all right, everybody raise your voices. No, you're going to do that because you, you, you know what God has, has done for you. You know that you've been redeemed. You know that you've been set free from, from sin. So, of course, you're going to express it because you, you, you're thinking in your mind about, man, I was in bondage to sin. You know, Egypt, man, we were, we were in bondage for 400 years. You know, God brought us across the Red, brought our fathers across the Red Sea. You know, God led us with a pillow cloud by day and a pillow of fire by night. God rained manna from heaven for 40 years. And as the scripture says, their clothes didn't wear out and their feet didn't, you know, get, get, get weary. So guess what? That feast of Pentecost, that feast of weeks was great time of Thanksgiving. And it wasn't done, this feast of weeks of Pentecost wasn't out of any type of obligation. They weren't obligated to do it. It was just a joyful heart response uh, of God's people to him. And when we think about how we worship God, we don't celebrate the feast of Pentecost because we're not Jewish, but we do celebrate what God has done for us uh, through Christ. And our heart response is one of joy and is one of thanks and it is one of gratitude. And that's what drives it. I was, um, you know, thinking about how, you know, God is working in the lives of uh, people in our church and people who are visiting our church, how God is working in the heart. That brings me great joy, seeing what God is doing in the hearts of, of people. That just gives me joy. I'm like, and I, and I think about it, I pray about it, I thank the Lord for it. And uh, because it is God who does that work. And it, it reminds me that, hey, God does hear our prayers. You know, when I pray for people to be saved and, and people to come to a knowledge of him and, and, uh, and whatnot. You, you, you get joy when you see God working. When you see God bringing people unto himself. That just brings me great joy. And that drives my joy. Because... You're focusing on the work of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Israel is doing the same thing with the Feast of Pentecost. Now, also, the Feast of Pentecost points to the founding of the church in Acts, the second chapter. The church was founded on the day of Pentecost. Because it says in Acts 2, the day of uh, Pentecost had fully come. So if you look at Acts 2 right quick. You'll see this when Peter gave his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts, the second chapter. And I'm going to take this towel. It's, uh, it's a little warm in here. Yep. You see it there. Acts 2. So this was the day of Pentecost. very first word said it right 
So the church was founded on the day of Pentecost. Yep, so the church was founded on the day of Pentecost and they were all gathered together in one place. And this would have included the leavened bread of the Gentiles. Because Gentiles were brought into the kingdom. Remember, Gentiles were not Jews. Okay. So, the church was founded, thank you, on the day of Pentecost. The church founded on the day of Pentecost. So that's another thing to remember about this Feast of Pentecost that we're reading in Deuteronomy. That the church itself or herself, the bride of Christ, was founded on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so they had a feast. And that's when the church was founded. Amen. So we're seeing the connection there between the old and the new. The next feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. And this begins at verses 13 through 15. Or the Feast of Booths, as it says in some uh, translations. Some was called, sometimes in, in um, Exodus, I think, 23, it was called the Feast of Ingathering. And this occurred in the fall, like September to October. Okay, it says when you have gathered from your threshing floor, the threshing floor is where they ground out the wheat and, and uh, you know, the fruits and all that stuff, the dates and the grapes and the olives and all that. Excuse me. So this focused on the harvest of summer fruits. Okay. Um, the Feast of Pentecost focused on the fall, you know, the, 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 the wheat and all that stuff. So this one focused on uh, the fruits. So it says here, you shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You know how they made wine back then? They literally pressed it. <laughs> like, you know. Yep. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they pressed it like, you know. Yep, that's how they did it back then. He says, uh, you shall rejoice in your feast. Again, that's rejoicing. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, female servant, basically everybody. Levite, sojourner, fatherless, and the widow who are within your gate. So there was no discrimination at all. Everyone was able to uh, rejoice. And it says here, for seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Remember, all three of these feasts are to be where? At the place where God chooses. God has a way and a place he desired to be worshipped uh, with his people. And why? Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your works of your hands so that you will uh, be altogether joyful. Three times a year your male shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They should not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is what? 
Abel according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So this feast of tabernacles basically uh, first of all it includes everyone. It includes everyone. So this, this is showing a God made a way for everyone to worship him. That there was no discrimination based on a person's uh, like social status or anything like that. Because he said manservant, maidservant. You know. Um, what? The sojourner, widow. You know, no matter a person's social. Because widows were very poor. Uh, in ancient Israel. And they were very poor. And the sojourners were those who were wandering through. Who were not part of Israel. So God made a way for everyone to celebrate. Uh, this uh, feast. So. They were to do it three times a year. Uh, the males. And. All the males. It says here. And then it says. They shall appear before the Lord at the place he would choose. And then list the three feasts again. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. Okay. All of them were to bring something. Okay. All of them were to bring something. That's fine. Yes, you can you can say that. In fact, of what we bring to the Lord. You can say that. Yeah, you're right. Not, yeah, I know you're not saying as far as like one specific place, but but a house of worship. Yeah, I, w- I would I would say so. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That is true because we don't we don't we don't distinguish exactly. That is true. You're you're right about that. That's a very good, very good point. You had your Wheaties this morning, uh, <laughs> so that is a that is a very good point. Yeah, the church uh, worshiping the church should be that way. I mean, that's good. That's good. So then he gives the appointment of judges and officers. So uh, you have justice in here. So you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns. That the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept the bride. For a bride blinds the eye of the wise. And subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now. Yes, so these leaders, um, God had appointed various leaders for his people. You had judges, you had priests, you had prophets, and you had uh, kings. We see that all throughout, uh, especially Old Testament history. Now, what leaders were to do were to exercise God's authority toward those under them they were in basically in God's stead so to speak and they were to 
they weren't going to do it perfectly, but they were to rule as fairly as God would because God does not show partiality. Just as we should not show partiality. So let's look back at 18th verse. It says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes that they shall judge the people with what kind of judgment? Righteous judgment or just judgment. So why do we have judges in towns? Because this was a large group of people. You're talking about two to three, three million people, you know, in the desert. And they were, uh, this is when they get over to the promised land now. So, uh, but they, you, you had to break them into groups, into towns. Because they all lived in town. When they settled, when you read the book of Judges, you know, they settled into, the, when the tribes got their, their, their land, their allotted lands, they had cities within those territories. Okay. So they, they had functioning cities. They had judges and all these different things. So God was basically laying out the parameters uh, for them. Okay, according to their tribes, and they judge the people with righteous judgment. So that was the first thing they had to judge righteously. They had to judge uh, fairly. Okay, they had to judge fairly, and that is what God calls us to do. As as believers, we ought to do the same thing. We have to judge fairly, and we have to judge uh, righteously uh, affairs. We have to be fair. And then he says in verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. Why? Because justice, ultimately, people, justice derives, uh, justice comes from the character of God. God is a just God. And with that being said, we judge the way that God would judge. To pervert basically means to taint. Okay, to make unclean. We're not to pervert justice. Now, of course, we're sinners. And sometimes justice is going to be unfair in a fallen world. It's unfortunate when it happens. But sometimes justice is going to be unfair. But for us as believers, we are to weigh justice the right way. And we'll see this in the uh, 18th chapter dealing with uh, how we should uh, do that. But... He says here in verse 19, as he continues, you should not show what? Partiality. Or take bribes. Why? This shows, the, this reflects the character of God. God, you can't bribe God. God is not partial. When God judges, guess what? He doesn't judge partially. At all. So we ought to be the same way. Do you all know that in a biblical sense the sin of partiality is racism? Because you're you're partial to someone because of their skin color. To be partial means like to show favor or favoritism towards someone. Racism this racism biblically is, is the sin of partiality. You're being partial to someone based on their skin color the melanin count in their skin and guess what everyone's guilty of the sin of partiality everyone is is capable rather of the sin of partiality when you show favoritism towards someone you're, you're committing the sin of partiality that's not the way God is 
God didn't show partiality. So we have to be careful about that ourselves. Because we can be partial and not even know it. We can be. We can be partial. We're not to judge uh, partially. We're supposed to judge impartially. We're not supposed to have, uh, I, I know the King James word is respecter of persons or respect of persons. We're not to consider that when we make judgments about people. We're supposed to do it partially. Okay, I'm sorry, we're not supposed to show partiality, but we're supposed to be fair. And we're not to take bribes. We're not to be connived into, um, you know, politicians do that all the time, right? <laughs> you know, exactly. So, but we're not supposed to show bribes. We're not supposed to take bribes. Rather, we're supposed to follow what is altogether just. Look at verse 20. Oh, yeah, look at what, what bribes do. I, I like the way uh, the Lord describes this. What does a bribe do? It blinds the eyes of the wise. And it subverts the cause of the righteous. Bribes blind people to doing true justice. They judge. I mean, they, they, they blind the wise. Those who know better can be victims of a bribe. You know, in, in the insurance industry, I can lose my license if I uh, bribe someone into getting a, a policy. Hey, man, I give you $20 if you, if you get this policy. You know, that I could lose my license for that, and I'll, I'll lose my job, too. You can't, you can't. You can't do bribes. I can't bribe someone uh, by I can't give out kickbacks, as they say. You can't do that. That's that's uh, unethical. You know, give somebody a twenty dollar gift card for getting a policy. You know, that's bribing. That's that's kickbacks. That's that's unethical. And I can lose my license for that. That's basically doing a bribe. You're doing a dishonesty. You're basically buying someone's business. You can't you can't do that. That's unethical. So bribes can pervert even wise people. This shows you that even the wise, even the smartest, can be susceptible to being bribed. For some people, they put a cost to it. You know, they're bought at a price. And some people, no matter what the cost, <laughs> they'll, they'll, uh, they'll compromise. taking bribes exactly you hear about that a lot is you know it can even it can affect the wise it can pervert justice so God is showing us how as believers as his covenant people we're supposed to be different verse 20 justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you we as believers ought to follow justice. Biblical justice, not social justice. <laughs> okay. We're not talking about social justice. No. Social justice is very partial. You know why? Social justice favors, quote, I'm just using this phrase just for the sake of what they say. Social justice favors people of color. It does. It shows favoritism towards people with a higher melanin count. Social justice 
perverts justice because it favors one racial group over another. It just does. And as Christians, we we know better not to give in to that and be that way because you know, like I've said before, you you can become suspicious of your own brothers and sisters in Christ if you uh, follow the the social justice movement. A social justice is a perversion of true biblical justice. Okay? It lets some people off the hook because of their skin color. Or because of where they came from and how they grew up. You know, you begin to make excuses for people's behavior. Because they didn't get enough hugs from their parents. Or they grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. And you begin to be partial to them and give them a pass if they commit a crime. That's perverting justice instead of punishing them. You see that all the time in um, in people like getting arrested for different things. Yep, they get a lower bond than, than they need. Um, it's two young men. Uh, one of them went to uh, Saks. They got arrested last week. Um, they committed uh, kidnapping, attempt, attempted kidnapping, attempted murder and armed robbery. It was uh one of was eighteen years old. He went to school with channeling him. He you know dropped out and stuff, but they had no bond on the kidnapping and the attempted armed robbery charge. We had a six thousand dollar bond on attempted murder. I'm like, why give them a bond? I mean, I don't think their parents will come up with six thousand dollars, but still they they should they should get no bond at all. But that's a perversion of justice. So, I, like I said, our justice system is not perfect. Because you have people who get out on bond who, who shot somebody, attempted murder, or murdered somebody. And, and, and they get out on bond. Yeah. Exactly. Gate aboard a gun. Yep. Yeah. Uh, basketball player for Alabama. Yep. Uh, Darius Miller, whatever his name is. Yep. But, yeah, he's... He, he, well, the the yeah the young man, yeah he 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 brought his gun to the like I say he left it in his car trunk or whatever. But the point is, he brought the gun to the location. And then the boy who shot the girl used got his gun. Whether he had nothing to do with it or not, it's still his gun. He should be charged with something. Exactly. Called him, asked him to bring his gun with him. Exactly. But yet, no, no charges being filed uh, against him. Some people say him because he's a good basketball player, which is, again, a perversion of justice. That's being, you know, we don't know all the details, but just from the looks of it, it just doesn't look good. So the point is, that's, that's perverting justice right there. Um, that's an accessory. Biblically, Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a perversion of justice right there. That's that's and there are many examples. So biblically, as as God tells us, justice and only justice we should follow. As Christians, the world's not going to do it because the world is going to world. But as believers, we do what is just and what is right. We have to look at it with biblical lens. 
and not be like the world. Because the world judges it um, based on a person's status, a person's skin color, you know, a person's feelings, and all those different things. That's not, that's partial. That's showing partiality. You know, we have to judge what's right. And then he ends this chapter, um, which goes into the 17th chapter about uh, ways to worship. It says, you shall not plant any trees as an Asherah um, beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. It is an abomination. So an Asherah was a, like a totem pole, basically. It's, it was a wooden image. And it's what the Canaanites uh, worshipped. They worshipped the Asherah pole. So it was basically... Like a totem pole, so to speak. Okay, so what what God was forbidding was what we call syncretism, where you 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 mix pagan worship with the worship of God. Called syncretism, you're syncing them together, trying to make those two things compatible when they are not. So the the Canaanites, you know, these these sacred totem poles were very common in Canaan. And so Israel could have been tempted to add such items to the worship of God. But God said, no, you shall not plant any tree as an Asherah before the altar. Just as in church, we don't bring any other type of worship of other religions into the church or into worship or even into our lives. We don't practice yoga, yoga and meditation and we don't read crystals and and have uh, ta talismans and amulets you know secret not secret but uh, lucky charms and all this different uh, stuff and, and, and you know as believers we don't we don't we don't try to mix that with our Christian faith you know astrology and you know your zodiac sign and all, all, all this pagan worship we don't those things don't mesh with biblical Christianity they lead you away from God not lead you to God so that syncretism doesn't doesn't work none of those things are compatible with uh, biblical Christianity so God was telling Israel the same thing these totem poles that you see these Canaanites they may look nice they may be elaborate and all colored up and carved up in nice elaborate ways or whatever but no you are not to place them beside the altar <laughs> uh, you know they should not set up a pillar <coughs> and the Lord uses strong language here which the Lord hates he hates it it is an abomination to him God does hate this type of worship as is his prerogative because he's God he alone is worthy of worship so uh, the law prevented this. Now, Manasseh did this. Turn to Second Kings. I've been reading about this when I was reading through First and Second Kings. Second Kings. Let me see. Second uh, Kings here. Yeah. First and Second Samuel. First and Second Kings. Let's see when was Manasseh reigning. 
Uh, I know it was before Josiah, so I think it's 21. Yeah. Now Manasseh was 12. He was young. <laughs> Verse 2 says he did evil in sight of the Lord. I think I remember telling y'all before, you know, I, I read through First, Second Kings. Yeah, good kings, evil kings. Good kings, evil kings. This is almost back and forth. Manasseh was one who did evil. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 2, 2 Samuel 21. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out from for the, for the people of Israel. For he rebuilt. Now, when Hezekiah was king, it was a great revival in Israel. He tore down all those altars, all the high places. So what did Manasseh come in and do? He rebuilt them. Rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And erected altars of Baal and made an Asherah. There you go. He made a pole. And then, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. Now Ahab was very wicked. His wife was Jezebel. And worship all the hosts of heaven and served them. So he got into angel worship and worshiping all this mysterious stuff. And he built altars. Listen, in the house of the Lord. On which the Lord has said it in J Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burnt his son. He sacrificed his own son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. Necromancers uh, so-called communicate with the dead. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah, there it goes, the Asherah pole, that he made, he set in the house of which... The Lord said to David and to his son in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes, I will put my name forever. So he set up an Asherah in the house of the Lord. He burned his son as an offering. <clears throat> he built altars for the host of heaven in the house <coughs> of the Lord. So, man, he just went crazy. That's what he did. And this was a king. A ruler. In Israel. So now you see why the Lord says he hates this. This pagan worship in his house. That's why we. As a church. We don't entertain anything. Of the sort. God desires holiness in his house. He desires holiness in us as we as we worship him. We can't mix Christianity with everything else. All this stuff, necromancing. You know, you hear people sometimes talking about they, you know, I can't even say I understand the sentiment behind it because it's still evil. When people say they talk to their loved ones and stuff like that. You have people that go to the graves of, relatives and sitting like they, they're talking to them. You can't talk to dead people. That's 
it's I mean, it's sad that people are doing that because obviously they don't have hope in Christ that they're with him. So they try to assuage their conscience or their grief. Try to deal with their grief instead of going to to Christ and knowing that if they're in Christ they'll be resurrected. That's the hope that you have as a believer. But if you're not a believer, you, your conscience is never going to be assuaged. It's never going to feel good. But you hear about people talking about they, they talk to their, they go to sit down, you know, go visit gravesite. And number one, visiting gravesites. I mean, whenever I get a chance to go down toward home, I always stop at Fort Mitchell to visit my father's, uh, you know, resting place at Fort Mitchell down outside of Phoenix City. But I don't sit and talk, <laughs> you know. I take some pictures and, and you know, because and, 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 my father's with the Lord. But I, I don't go there and just talk and all that stuff. You know, you can't, you can't talk to the dead. You can't conjure up the dead or their spirits and all that stuff. You know, no one spirit lives inside of anyone. That's, no, that's, that's necromancing. That's what that is. And that's what, uh, and that's, that's mediums trying to be a mediator, like communicating with the dead. That's, that's what a medium uh, is allegedly doing. But God hates that. Why? Because it is perverting worship. And, and that's why the Lord detests. That's what the pagans do. And that's what, Manasseh did in, in Judah. I mean, his father destroyed all the high places. And he comes in and rebuilds them. Puts them back up. And then has it taking place in the temple of God. Yeah, very spoiled. And he was doing something very, uh, and he birthed his own son as an offering. Think about that. That's like people who kill their babies in the womb. They're sacrificing them to the pagan god of self. That's what abortion is. It is it is sacrificing of your child to your pagan god who is yourself. You're sacrificing your baby to self. Self is a god. It's a false god. But it's a god nonetheless. And you're sacrificing your own child by doing that. He built altars to the host of heaven. Like I said, that's astrology. Use fortune telling and omens and, you know, casting spells and, and all this stuff. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is, this is why God was forbidding Israel to do this. Because God knows the hearts of man more than we do. Israel probably, oh, we would never do that. <laughs> you know, we will never build Asherah poles, uh, you know, next to the altar of the Lord. <laughs> but guess what? They end up doing it. That's what they end up doing. So, God, we see in this chapter right here, with all the feasts, the justice that God is calling for. And the forms of worship that we'll pick up next week. Chapter 17. But all this shows us. The holiness of God. How God desires to be worshipped. In what manner. And in what place. And what is forbidden. 
and how we should celebrate what God has done for us in redeeming us from the slavery of sin, just like Israel was celebrating what God did in bringing them out of Egypt. We, we rejoice in Christ because of what he has done for us. And as we rejoice in him, we put away all things that are not like him. We make sure that we judge righteously and we make sure that we worship righteously and not do what is an abomination to the Lord but do what is right in his sight and that's what God was calling his people to do again on the banks of the Jordan and of course we know the story that they didn't do it but that still doesn't mean that God doesn't desire that and command that of us as his people amen I think that's a good landing spot thank you all for your uh, input. Amen.